Good morning, Shabbat Shalom. Um, a funny thing happened on the way to the message. Normally, when Howard asks me to, uh, to do the message in his absence, uh, I will prepare a message based upon this Torah study. And I did that this week, or based upon the, the Torah reading. And the Lord kept, as I was preparing it, the Lord kept taking me back into Deuteronomy 6. And I'd be working on the message, and the Lord would say, no, look at Deuteronomy 6. I'm thinking, no, come on, I need to be in Genesis here. And I'm in Deuteronomy 6. Finally, I thought, okay, what is going, you know, look, I'm speaking on, you know, the Torah portion. What? And I finally, then God took me to Job 38, and I got the hint. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Job 38, it's where God tells Job, okay, now we're going to have ourselves a little talk. So, I'd like to talk this morning about one of the fundamentals of Judaism, and one that should be fundamental, I think, for all believers. Turn with me for a moment to Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 9. It should sound pretty familiar, or at least some of it. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that you may, it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. You t shall teach them diligently to your sons, to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your home, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign in your hand, and they shall be for frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. That is probably one of the core prayers in Judaism, the Shema. We sang it this morning, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. A very short sentence, three phrases, but there's a lot that you can unpack from that single sentence. Now, we're going to do that this morning. I'll engage in a little bit of midrash, which is kind of where someone takes a piece of scripture and says, this is what it makes me think of. We'll be digging a little bit into the language itself. But the Shema is the part of every religious gathering within Judaism, and traditionally, it is the last words from the mouth of a Jew. Now, Shema itself is an interesting word. It means more than listen or hear. It combines hearing, understanding, and doing. Now, in the Hebrew here, it's rendered in the imperative as a command. Think in terms of a drill instructor addressing a group of soldiers, at least in terms of its tone. Listen up. Know this. Take this to heart. Act upon this. Make what you're about to hear a part of your being. Now, Israel there, is rendered in the masculine singular. It isn't Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, even though it's clearly addressed to the entire nation. The entire nation, the entire gathered people, is being addressed as a single individual. When I think about that, I think about the fact that, really, in a way, here at the very core, we have a statement that says, 
You're responsible for one another because in God's eyes, you are one another. An entire nation addressed as a single individual. It also makes me think about the fact that when God makes promises to Israel, they are made to the nation, to the people. All too often, it seems to me that we take the promises that God made to his people as a whole and appropriate them to ourselves in specific instances. doesn't necessarily work that way. I hate to say it. Fortunately, the cursings don't work that way either, so there's a trade-off there. Now, here's the thing. All of the people who were gathered there were not all descendants of Israel, but they're referred to as Israel. Remember, these are the descendants of those who left Egypt. And Exodus 12, 38 tells us that it refers to it as Erev Rav, a mixed multitude. One of the few things that Jewish and Christian scholars completely agree on is that the group that left Egypt was ethnically diverse. Not all of them were physically descended from Israel. Again, getting a little bit midrashic. It seems to me that what is happening here is that God is defining this community. He's telling them, whatever your ethnicity was, you're part of this community because of what comes next. Now, this is a mixed community. I look out and I see, if not every ethnos on the planet, a great majority of them. I know a few folks, if they were here as visitors today, we'd pretty much have the whole, the whole gamut. Actually, we have a few folks who've been here who just by themselves are almost the whole gamut, but that's another discussion. But I don't want us to take that unity too far. We are distinct individuals. There are those of us who are part of this community as Jewish people, and their role is to be part of this community as Jewish people. And there are those of us who are part of this community as Gentiles, and we are called to be part of this community as who God has called us to be. I often get asked, so are you Jewish? And some of you have heard my standard answer. For historical reasons, there just aren't too many Jewish kids named Christopher. The name never really caught on in the Jewish community. But in a way, this statement defines who Israel is as a nation. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Now, it's always spoken as Adonai, and when we see it transliterated, written out in English letters, it's transliterated as Adonai, and it's shown that way in a Siddur. The text in the Torah, though, is the Tetragrammaton, the yud heh vav heh the single I am, the unspoken name of God. This, my friends, is serious business. This name of God in temple times was only spoken by the high priest, and then only in the Holy of Holies, and then only at Yom Kippur. Elsewhere, then and now, we use Adonai, which translates Lord, or Hashem, which refers to the name. Orthodox Jews won't even spell out the word God or Lord in English. They'll insert a hyphen for the O, lest God's name in any form be desecrated or misused. Bit of a side note here, and those of you who have ever taken an MSI class of mine know that I occasionally go off on bunny trails. The yud heh vav is interesting how it's always rendered in the Torah. There are never any indications of tense. Past tense, present tense, future tense. When Moshe asked for God's name in Exodus 3.13, God answers with the yud heh vav 
Now, we see it translated as I am who I am or I am that I am. But because there is no tense, there's an understanding that's possible there of I always have been and I always will be. Or what I was to your fathers, I will be to your descendants. Or I am the eternal one without beginning or end, and nobody caused me. God doesn't say things lightly. Another side note, and a lot of you are already familiar with this point, but there are those who say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, never claimed to be God. Well, take a look at John's Gospel. Every place that he says, I am, every place that Yeshua says, I am, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, his Jewish listeners would have understood that as a direct claim to being the very presence of God. At one point, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they were going to stone him because they felt that claim was blasphemy. So he definitely made that statement. John understood it that way, and he recorded it that way for a reason. Okay, I'm going to go on a bunny trail off the bunny trail. How many of you have noticed the similarity of Hashem, the name, and Shema? If I can be a little bit rabbinic here and engage in a little wordplay, I'll kind of go off on a tangent. That makes me think of how biblical names reflect the meaning and under, the understanding of a person's nature. Names in Hebrew are not merely labels. They convey the nature of the individual from Adam, who came forth from Adama, to Avram, who went from mighty father, to Avraham, father of a great people, to Jacob, from our Torah passage today, who wrestled with God and became Yisrael. That's why the naming of a child in Scripture or the renaming of an individual is so important. And that's what makes Isaiah 9-6 so amazingly powerful. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and this is the name by which he will be called. It's not giving a physical name. The kid's not going to be called Pelio Etzel Gibor Aviad Sarshalom. I mean, come on, nobody puts that many blank spaces in a form. He's describing the nature of this child. Now, getting back to the Yudhe the Tetragrammaton, there are some who insist that that word must be used somehow or spoken in a certain way. That, to me, rings wrong because this was a word that was used exclusively by God's people in his temple. It's not there. And for, for a lot of us, we're not them. We aren't descended from the ones that received the Shema at the foot of the mountain. Now, I've heard the response, but doesn't Scripture say things are done in his name? Right? We pray. You know, we end a prayer in Yeshua's name. I did this morning. Well, again, names are indicative of the nature. So when we pray something, when we do something, when we ask for God's blessing in his name, what we're asking for is his nature to take effect. We're asking for it to occur by virtue of who God is. We're not using a name or a word as some kind of magical talisman. And second, once you nail down a pronunciation, you've now rendered a tense, and you've taken the word out of its eternal state. But getting back, winding back the bunny trails, getting back to the Shema, and pardon me for, for doing that. So thus far we've gotten through Shema Yisrael Adonai, halfway through the through the Shema. Eloheinu, El, God. Elohim, gods. The suffix nu is a plural possessive. Eloheinu is probably pretty well unpacked as out of all of the gods of the various peoples, 
the one that is ours. Adonai Eloheinu points to the uniqueness of the relationship between God and his people, the unique relationship between Israel and the one true and eternal God. Remember, when this was given, this was the only monotheistic religion in existence. Adonai Eloheinu is a powerful statement of exclusivity of that relationship. Now, lots of folks refer to Adonai Echad as a statement against the Trinity. That's actually a later interpretation. In the first century, it wasn't viewed that way. And it somewhat distorts Echad. The Tanakh is full of examples of the yud heh vav appearing to men in human form. Messengers of God who appeared to Avraham at the birth of Isaac, his negotiation for Sodom and Gomorrah. They appeared to, uh, to Samson's parents. And then, of course, you have Daniel's vision of the one like a son of man. In that day, a messenger wasn't just an errand boy. Communications aren't that instant. When you send a messenger to do something in the ancient period, that person goes with full decision-making and negotiation authority. They have to, because they can't grab a cell phone and call back to the boss. A messenger is the immediate presence of the one who sent the message. That changed understanding comes in part of Echad, comes from Moses Maimonides, Rambam, the Moshe, uh, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, who was a rabbi in the Middle Ages, who I think in response to the claims of the early church, wrote what is recorded in the Gemara, Sanhedrin 10, as his 13 articles of faith. And he wrote of God, Hu Yahid and Aino Guf. Hu Yahid refers to an absolute singularity. Aino Guf is an absolute statement that God has no form, never has had, never taken corporeal form in any manner. But Echad has a somewhat more nuanced meaning than Yahid. For example, a husband and wife are referred to as Echad, emphasizing that a marriage is a unique union of two individuals. A family is similarly Echad. A congregation would be referred to as Echad. Now, it's not that Echad means a composite unity. I've heard people say that, and that's not quite it. What it does speak of is the uniqueness of the composite, the uniqueness of what is being spoken of. When a marriage is Echad, it is one man and one woman consecrated to each other. All others are outside of that unique relationship, no matter how close they may be to it. A family or a congregation being Echad similarly speaks of a group of people who have a special dedication to one another, a special relationship. So fully unpack this first line of the Shema is less a statement of God being a non-Trinitarian soul entity than it is a statement of the unique relationship between Israel and God. Israel, you are a people because your God is the only God and you have a unique relationship with him. It, it, its structure and meaning is, is kind of, to me, it's kind of similar to the statement from, from Song of Psalms. Ani ludodi bedodi li. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now the next line in the Shema goes into detail about what Israel, as that nation, needs to do about it. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and your whole strength. Bahafta me'ad the Hebrew root ahav in ve'ahavta means of a consistent, all-encompassing desire. We use the word love, okay? But this is closer to the desire for 
air or water or food or companionship. It is an essential, it is meeting an essential need. Adonai Elohecha. It's now in the plural possessive. It's not Adonai Eloheinu this time, it's Adonai Adonai Elocha. You know those glottal fricatives are really tough when your mouth is dry? That plural possessive addresses each individual in that first composite unity. So the things that follow are the responsibility of each individual in that community. The nation loves God with their whole heart, soul, and strength because each individual does. Now the word Hebrew words lavav, nefesh, and ma'od, there's some degree of overlap in their semantic ranges. And I wish Henry was here to hear me use semantic range. He loves that. But lavav is mind, heart, will, soul, understanding, knowledge, thinking, reflection, memory, inclination, resolution, determination of your will, conscience, and, as, and, and conscience as both the seat of emotions and passions and as the seat of courage. Nefesh, soul, life, creature, person, appetite, mind, a living entity, desire, emotion, passion. Meod, I love meod. With all your might, with all your force, with all your abundance. Henry likes to translate it, all your muchness, exceedingly. Meod is flat out, pedal of the metal. Those of you who are old train folks, highballing. Just everything you got. And the overlap and duplication seems to provide an emphasis, a building crescendo. It involves your mind, your intellect, your desire, all of your being, everything you've got. In short, the love of God here is called to be the core of our being, a part of our self-identity, and the greatest part of us as individuals. And I say that to you this morning as someone who doesn't succeed at that. But we serve a gracious God who sets a high bar and lovingly stands with us to meet it and lovingly gave his son because we couldn't. It's a lot to aspire to. Let us aspire to that. Let us aspire to keep these words in our minds, to teach them to our children, to speak of them in our homes, to speak of them when we travel, when we're at work, when we're on the way, to make them a part of our thoughts as much as if they were tied to our heads and a part of what we do as much as if it was, was the words themselves were tied to our hands. We have an opportunity here to express our thanks to God, not just this weekend, not just this week, not just this season of the year, but all the time in what we do, in how we interact with the world around us. My prayer for me is that I would be better at it than I have been in the past. And that is my prayer for each of us as well. Let us aspire to what God has called us to. Let us aspire to be that one people bound to the one God. Shabbat Shalom. God, you brought us together. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the honor of being able to give it, to present it, to share what you have put on my heart. Lord, I ask that you would be with us, that you would fulfill that promise that you made to be with us, to help us to do what you've called us to do. Strengthen us, Lord. Bind us together with your presence and your peace. In Yeshua's name. Amen.